VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. <laughs> and now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Wednesday, August the 10th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's producing the program. Let's get it going. We're looking forward to speak with you this morning on a topic of your choosing. So, if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial is 273-5211. Elsewhere, toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. Well, I was, I was just mentioning to Dave, sometimes when you don't get a whole lot of sleep, you can still function pretty well. Some nights when you get a really restful, decent night's sleep, which I can't I had last night. <laughs> Absolutely zonked. Having a hard time pulling it together here. It did feel good to sleep under the covers last night. Cool enough to do exactly that. I can't remember the last time I slept under the covers. But you can't have it all up, can you? So I woke up in the middle of the night, and lo and behold, my foot is wet. <laughs> I had the window open a little bit too wide. The foot in the corner of the duvet. Wet. Yeah. All right. Speaking of wet. We're looking pretty good at the Canada Summer Games. I have to say, we've got five medals in total now. It wasn't that long ago, the games that I last attended back in 2017 in Winnipeg, we got one medal, and it came late in the contest. We got, I think it was a bronze in wrestling. Young lady from Mount Pearl, I believe, or Labrador. I should have looked that up before I started babbling about it. Anyway, five medals so far in week number one. Let's get it going. A couple of medals for Chris Weeks. Chris Weeks is a member of the Mount Pearl Maryland Swim Club. He won a silver medal in the 100-meter free, then gold. Top step of the podium, he won the 50-meter butterfly with a really impressive time. So that's a pair for Chris Weeks. Gold medal, absolutely brilliant stuff. Another one of his uh, co-swimming partners at the Mount Pearl Marlins is Thomas Pelly. He was also involved in the medal medals yesterday, so bravo to him. I got that here somewhere. What does he got? He won a bronze in the 100-meter men's backstroke, so way to go to a couple of the Marlins hitting the podium. So five medals is a good thing. I think we're going to have some time to speak with the chef de mission, Gary Martin. He's representing the province as lead. Uh, in that capacity, Tom Godd, a good friend of mine, a neighbor of mine, is one of his assistants. We're going to speak with Gary about what's shaking at the Canada Summer Games in Niagara pretty soon. Also, we picked up a baseball win, beat New Brunswick 7-5. And look, I'm trying to keep up with it as best I can. But if you've got someone belong to you or you're in Niagara and want to keep us up to date, look, even if you want to report personal best, because I'm torn. I do think it's important to enjoy it and soak it up. I mean, it's a national competition for most of the athletes. It's the first time they would have competed on the national stage. Now, it may have gone to a single sport nationals, absolutely. But when you have athletes of all the disciplines in Niagara or wherever they're competing at that given time, it's an experience that you have to maximize. So some athletes will be going for their personal best. Some athletes have their sights set on a podium and a medal. Some of them are there knowing full well that maybe it's not their year. They might not be up to the standards of some of their competitors, and so be it. But I got myself in a lot of hot water back in the 2017 games when I kind of publicly bemoaned the fact that we didn't do much in the way PBs. We didn't do a whole lot so far as getting a medal. And I know it's not to be all and end all. Sometimes the competitive spirits just overflow a little bit, and those types of comments come out. But anywho, we're doing great. And to all the athletes, as long as you have trained and you're peaking hopefully and you put forward your best foot and your best effort bravo i suppose i'm getting milder as i get a bit older all right this is a great story that i saw on the telegram 
for the first time since 20, no, for 2009, there was rugby at the Canada Summer Games. And we do indeed have a female rugby sevens team in it. One of the players is named Jessie Penny. Her father, Dave Penny, well-known, respected, and feared rugby player back in the day. So he was a stalwart on the rock for quite a long time and, of course, has a handful of caps. I can't remember exactly how many caps he got, Dave, but send me a note let me know. He's, we're friends on Facebook, so send me a note there, Dave. Bunch of caps in the 90s for Canada. So when you have an overachieving parent in a sport, sometimes it could be a leg up, sometimes it could be intimidating, but regardless, Jesse Penny, playing for Newfoundland and Labrador's Rugby Sevens, is in Niagara, and of course, these types of stories about the familial relationships, and some of the backstory about how you got to this level of athletics, I think just gives it that bit more, those additional layers. Beyond the sport, we're talking about young athletes and their families and the effort required and, you know, following in dad's footsteps, in this case, as a rugby player. So good luck to the Rugby Sevens group. They, had, they were 1-1 one one yesterday. They won their opener 26-5 over Manitoba, if I remember correctly. But I love these stories. So Jesse Penny and the Rugby Sevens doing good. Hope you're doing well, Dave. Look forward to seeing you maybe on the next tour, as, you, as they say. Anyway, that was a good one. I uh, can't read this particular scribble. Okay. Uh, another one, this one's moving off to the sport of hockey, and I know it's not hockey season, but I'm going to talk about it anyway. This is an email I got from one of the members of the Taylor family. Jerry Taylor, decades involved with the St. John's Junior Hockey League. Decades. Jerry passed away during COVID. There was the inability for his family to celebrate with his hockey family, his life, his volunteerism, and what he meant to the St. John's Junior Hockey League and minor and amateur hockey period. So the league, and I think this is a very smart move, very appropriate, they've changed the name of the President's Cup to the Jerry Taylor Memorial Cup. So now the Taylor Cup. So good morning to the Taylor family. That's a really appropriate homage to Jerry Taylor, who was an absolute giant in the amateur hockey ranks. So I think that's a really appropriate move. A good on the St. John's Junior Hockey League to do exactly that. All right, a couple of more quick notes as I ease into today. I mentioned yesterday Jesse Owens back in the 1936 Berlin Games with these four gold medals, much to the chagrin of the Fyodor. It was today in history the American, uh, American swimmer Michael Phelps, of course the most decorated uh, summer athlete of all time, who won his first of the record eight gold medals at the Beijing Olympics, broke his own world record in the 400-meter individual medley. That's back in 2008. And this is a curious one. 1948, what became something very new to TV viewers was can-do camera. Now it's evolved since, the, since then, obviously, to being punked and what have you, but it made its U.S. television debut in 1948. Curiously, it was on radio for a full year prior to that. Certainly not the same opportunity to capture the reaction and the <gasps> and what have you when it comes to being caught out as a victim on candid camera, but that hit the screens in the United States in 1948. Okay, I want to give you a warning. Every now and then when we hear about one of the scams that's making the rounds, it's worthwhile giving people a heads up because we'd hate to see, fee- uh, see people fall prey to these nuisances. This one, people are looking at the online buy and sell groups. Things like Facebook Marketplace. It's super popular. Kijiji and all the rest of it. It really is truly popular. Some people are at it all the time. You know, as they say, one man's garbage is another man's gold. So they go to the garage sales and the yard sales, what have you, pick up something. They paid five bucks, try to get ten bucks for it online. Okay, so be it. 
But we have all these conversations about verifying who you're dealing with so that you don't get separated from your hard-earned money. This one is about trying to get your phone number. So what they do is the seller is con uh, contacted by a potential buyer. They say they're very interested in your item, but they need to prove that you are legitimate as the seller. So what they ask you to do is give you their phone number. Then they text you a verification code. Then you're uh, instructed to reply with the six-digit verification code back on the platform itself. Consequently, what they do is use your number and the verification code through vo uh, Google Voice number. They can either uh, scam you out of your complete account. And I don't know all the ins and outs of the scams, but I guess it's just another friendly reminder that they're out there looming and lurking around every corner, digitally and otherwise. So don't be sharing your phone number. If it's too good to be true, it's too good to be true. So follow the marketplace gu guidelines, but that's a new one now because people want to verify who they're dealing with. One way is send me your number, I'll reply to you, so then I know who you are. But I guess like everything else, people are willing to hijack it. Okay, before we get into some of the major news stories of the day, I read this one and I, I thought it was curious. Now we talk about the amount of money that people are being paid in certain sectors of the economy. And you can pick them through the service in industry and otherwise. Some, say for instance, restaurants have moved to no tip. It's all built into your final bill. And consequently, their servers are making, pick a number, $20 an hour. Okay. So I worked in the service in industry for a long time in the 90s. So I'm really aware of a tip. Good service gets a good tip from me. But there's such a thing called tip nudge or tip creep. The question being posed in the story is, do you tip the person who mows your lawn, if someone mows your lawn? Do you tip your mechanic? Do you tip your hairdresser? Because tipping at the bar, tipping at the restaurant, and other settings is pretty normal course of business. Even though there's travelers from other parts of the world, tipping is completely foreign to them. And when they see a bill come out that's got a gratuity built in, they're like, what? What is this? But the question is, do you tip others for the service they provide? So, so many businesses that we have not associated with tipping, they've got a built-in option because so many of us don't carry cash, even though I don't mind having a $20 bill in my pocket, is if you're using your credit card or your debit card, you get the machine in your hand, and the first prompt is, would you like to add a tip? 10, 15, 18, 20%. So for some people, it's like, tip, what am I doing tipping the mechanic? It's a $2,000 bill, well, no, no tip. So, but it's a psychological nudge down that path. You can very quietly say no, but it's becoming more and more prevalent and prominent that just about every time you're past the keypad, there's an opportunity to tip, even for people that you may not associate with being in the tip business. So they're calling it a tip nudge or a tip creep, and it happens quite, a long, uh, quite often. So I'm just curious if you, what you think about the tipping, or do you appreciate, for instance, when a restaurant includes the grat, the gratuity, and they pay their employees a higher hourly wage because maybe, maybe, just sometimes, you might be the poor unfortunate soul stuck with a six top who are as tight as whatever your tight analogy might be. Anyway, let's keep going. Good news, some relief. The Beta Spare Highway has been reopened. They are, they are asking people to take your time. There might be some visibility concerns, low ceiling today. I'm not out in, this, in the region, so I don't know exactly what it looks like and feels like today. Barry Manuel, the mayor of Grand Falls Windsor, is going to come on here shortly, give us some of his perspective. They 
Luckily, the conditions make it a little bit easier for the firefighters and for the resources they're using. Again, I'm not there, so I don't know. There's still some concerns in some parts of the area, and even as far afield as Cornerbrook, about air quality. Again, if you want to share your perspective, what you're smelling or seeing when you open the window or go up with the door. It reminds me that, you know, we're doing and fighting these four fires, apparently there's four active fires, the two main ones in Central are deemed to be out of control. We're doing it with down one water bomber. Remember, not that many years ago, one of the water bombers we had in our fleet of four was damaged and hasn't been repaired, and we're not even sure what we want to do with it. So then we needed support from the province of Quebec and the federal government to what have you. So folks are reminded to remain prepared. Because you don't know. If it heats up again and the wind changes, which, of course, is going to be one of the tr- uh, key areas of how the fire behaves and the opportunity to fight the fire. Now, with the highway open, people are quite pleased to be able to go home. People are quite pleased on the other side of the fire, close to base, maybe to get out for an appointment or what have you. Some of the store shelves were going a little bit bare. Some areas, they were only selling gasoline to those providing emergency services. So it's just remarkable how quickly things can turn from, oh no, this is awful, good luck to the firefighters, wish them a safe uh, safe work, then, oh, well, the shelves are a little bit bare. And you know how quickly that can happen in this province. So on top of the firefighters and everyone working towards fighting the fires, also want to add to it, good morning and thank you very much to the volunteers, whether they be from the Salvation Army and or the Lions Club and out at the Maxims Camp who have been housing and feeding the firefighters. It does take a full community to ship in. So once again, if you're in the region, you know more about it than I do. If you want to chime in, we certainly would appreciate your time and your perspective this morning. Let's move off into the fishery. We know that we've got the annual battles around here for setting the price per pound for whatever species we're talking about and all the issues that continue to be part of the conversation. The lack of adjacency being enshrined in the legislation, right? Primary beneficiary stuff. Buddy up and bycatch and individual quotas and the moratoriums on things like mackerel and what have you. So these conversations, we can have them all the time in this program. But then you do look at some other provinces and what they're doing in an effort to be more prepared and to put the infrastructure in place for access to market. For instance, in this case, and I read this on the CNL blog, it's about the province of Nova Scotia. They've opened up a new $36 million cargo park to fly millions of pounds of seafood to the global markets. In Dartmouth, there's a new $20 million seafood packaging plant. I believe that's private investment dollars from OCR. So, you know, the point was made, and I think interestingly uh, enough in the piece, that when you arrive at St. John's International Airport, you might have a hard time getting a cab. How about trying to add the additional complication of trying to get your lobster to market in China 17 hours later when we've got some logistical challenges that we haven't quite addressed? So in other parts of the country, they are putting the infrastructure in place. Now, of course, some of this absolutely is on the private sector. Of course it is. But the nudge down the path and understanding where we can indeed do better, I must say it's got to be an awful scramble. We talk about, you know, travel for recreational or enjoyable vacation purposes and direct flights into Dublin or wherever, to Newark, New Jersey. Imagine trying to get your crab or your lobster or whatever product out based on the frequency of flights and even the access to the international airports from wherever you might be landing your product. But they're doing a lot of different things in other parts of the country, especially Nova Scotia. And we do know there's the opportunity to leverage money from ACOA. So it was an interesting blog from CNL. If one of their representatives is listening this morning, we can do it. In 2020, seafood exports from this province were valued at around $880 million. 
around $2 billion in Nova Scotia. Now, there is some additional context to that with quota and the price that they're paying at their processing plants versus what we might have seen the harvesters get in this province. But anyway, it also points out in the article what was a distinct change in tune regarding the fisheries fund. Remember when the big glossy announcement at the Rooms was $400 million from a partnership between the province and the federal government to enhance the fishery in this province, all basically because of the removal of minimum process requirements when we join into the trade deal with the European Union, CETA. Yeah, that's now become $400 million to be shared amongst all four Atlantic Canadian provinces. I don't know about the number of projects that have been funded here, but, you know, they're coming in dribs and drabs. And I'm sure it's beneficial to those on the receiving end of some of the money. But you do remember when it was just this province on the receiving end of the partnership money. It was 70-30 between the feds and us. And now, not quite. If you're in the fishery, you want to talk about it. Or even some of the testing that's been done on the ropeless gear. That, of course, has been advanced because the issues regarding right whales, even so, even though some fishermen will say the attention in some areas to right whales, and we have to be cognizant of all marine mammals, but some of the ropeless gear is going to possibly be used in areas where they've never seen a right whale. So anyway, you want to take it on. We can do it. How are we doing on the phone, Dave? So whether it be healthcare, I saw Central Health uh, tweeting out a bunch of uh, additional diversions from emergency rooms in particular. Also in healthcare, there's an interesting story. Some people, though, you know, would like to say that every problem that we're experiencing with access to one goods or one service is all one politician's fault, as opposed to what is very real in uh, different arenas of the global supply chain breakdown. One issue is with the shortage of uh, what do they call them? Epidural catheters. For me, I directly associate these catheters with pregnancies. You know, people talk about getting an epidural, but apparently it's also used in other surgeries. And now with the shortage and the uncertainty about when the global supply chain will ramp back up so we're not having to triage based on patient risk and looking for alternatives, whether it be with laughing gas or breathing or positioning techniques or other, other alternatives can, that can be administered, say, through the spine. Imagine, we're dealing with the, the shortage of blood vials and uh, epidural catheters and up and down the line. So anything inside of that arena or anything under the sun, we can talk about it when we come back from this break. But first, we're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is openline.vocm.com. But here's a tune to get you going. In 1968, at the top of the charts in the UK was Welsh legend Tom Jones with Delilah. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's begin this morning on line number two. Rob, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you making out, boy? Doing okay. Thanks. How are you doing? Good. Good. Um, I just wanted to uh, just catch on a couple notes there about the regatta. Um, my late mother-in-law, who's always taken 50 years or so, so we were glad to get back at it. And, uh, you know, in her memory and everything like that. And we, uh, it was a stellar year. Um, I've never seen crowds like it before in my life. Well, uh, people are anxious to get back down. It's the first time anyone's been able to go in normal fashion, so to speak, since 2019. So, yeah, the crowds were massive. I didn't get down until championship races, and they were still huge. Yeah, like um, like I said, we got concession stands there, and we have we have uh, we usually had four concessions, uh, just uh, just little prizes, toys for kids, and stuff like that, and games and stuff for kids, and the kids always win. That was our our motto. Kids always won a prize in our in our stuff. Terrific. And, um, but uh, it's never happened before, but we were sold out by four o'clock in the afternoon. 
every toy we had. So what are we operating, like fish ponds or something? No, it's just a little little uh, boards where the kids would pick out a, a, just little pucks and stuff like that and find a, a prize behind it. Okay. And they get to pick out anything they want. But we were completely sold out by 4 o'clock in the afternoon on two stands. We had two concessions there, and both of them were sold out completely. So I'd just like to give a, a kudos to everybody that uh, did the regatta this year. But what I found was that there was there was less concession stands this year than there has been in the past. Say that part again about concession numbers. I, 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 the concession stands, the, the amount of people having games and stuff like that was way less than what it used to be. Yeah, I heard that sentiment from many people. When we asked the committee themselves, they say there's a very similar number of concessions, but whether that be vendors or games of chance, they didn't give us the breakdown, but I do know that they were spread out much further than they had been in years past. I mean, the bouncy castles and the kids' area was way down the shore. So I don't know if it was the optics of how spread out things were, but I've heard that from many people, Rob. Yeah, yeah. No, I agree with you. Like, I, 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 they've done a fabulous job at uh, spreading it out so you're not with concessions before, like down, down along the pond. Uh, you were on a slough and everything like that. It was hard to really operate any type of uh, concession stand. But they've done a really nice job at uh, outfitting it out and bringing it up all on level ground and everything like that. Yeah, it looks quite nice down there. It really does. And more improvements to come. Yes, that's what I've heard. Yes, so no, it's it, it's fantastic. So I just wanted to give kudos out to the regatta team and everything like that. Uh, they put off a great year, and the crowds were fantastic. Yeah, they had a good day for it, that's for sure. It was, wasn't was quite as scorching hot as the forecast seemed to uh, indicate getting into it, but plenty hot, I would imagine, if you're standing there in the bright sun uh, all day or if you're in the shell racing on the water. Uh, good to have you on the show, Rob. I'm glad it worked out for you. I suppose, in retrospect, you wish you had to have another few cases of uh, toys in behind the stand so you could have kept going until whatever, 7 or 8 o'clock. Absolutely. In retrospect, yes, we could have had another, you know, few thousand things and it wouldn't have stopped. Wow. But uh, so I'll, I'll leave that note there. And I just wanted to also mention about the, the fires out in Central there. Okay. And and I feel for the people out there because I was in Fort McMurray when the fire came through there and we lost everything out there. Oh, no. So I, I feel I feel the uh, the pain for everybody and the frustration. And, you know, like for me, even today, we still get PTSD from it. Um because we had the fire there out in Long Pond. I'm out in CBS there, and we had the fire come into Long Pond there and almost burnt a few houses down there. But the uh, the firefighting uh, people here and everything like that are just absolutely fantastic. Well, and for McMurray, you know, it was the, the concept of one road in, one road out. And I can still remember quite vividly the videos of people trying to get out of town. Uh, between the smoke and the possibility for fire, which was right there to jump across the road, it was some extraordinary pictures. I'm not really familiar with Fort McMurray. I've been there. Where did you live? I lived in a, a community, Abbasand. Okay, I know where Abbasand is. Yeah. Up above the hospital. Sure. Uh, anyway, extraordinary times. I hope that people in Fort McMurray felt how quickly the province rallied to try to help from so far away because we just have so many friends and brothers and sisters and cousins that live in Fort McMurray and surrounding area, and I guess throughout Alberta. So I'm sure it does come back with some haunting memories in the form of PTSD, uh, I think is how you refer to it. Rob, I appreciate your time this morning. Did you move immediately back to the province after the fire? No, no, we stayed there for, we just moved back there uh, two years ago, two and a half years ago. Well, and um, we, so we stayed up there 
Um, it was a bit of a kerfuffle up there, but I blame the Alberta government. Like, you know, Newfoundland here, they've got water bombers and everything always on site and everything like that. And Alberta, they had helicopters with water bags to fight a, a 700,000 kilometer fire. And it's just is pitiful. Yeah, there was a, a pretty deep investigation in the aftermath. I don't know if there was any accountability doled out, but uh, Rob, I appreciate making time for the show. Your thoughts on the regatta, and I'm sure the memories of the uh, the fire are still vivid, to say the very least, in your mind. Stay in touch. Okay, thank you very much, Fatty. Have a good day. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Uh, okay, let's go to line number one. Sandy, you're on the air. Is that me? That's you, if you're Sandy. Well, I, I didn't hear my name. I heard a beep. <laughs> okay. Anyway, I'm really nervous. Um, I tried to call yesterday, but I called too late and I didn't get on, so I decided to call you first thing this morning. Um, and I got a lot to say. I don't really know how to begin, <clears throat> but uh, I'm calling about uh, low income and working poor because sometimes I f- kind of feel like I'm the poster child for the working poor. I've been working full time since I'm 15, and I'm 55 now. I'm going to try not to cry to get through this. It's going to be difficult. I'll do my best. But anyway, um, for the last 15 years, I've been a self-employed housekeeper for people. And it was always a struggle financially, but we got through myself and my husband. But when COVID hit, it was a serious uh, problem. Uh, The CERB came out, which saved us. And uh, it's the only thing government has ever done that directly and positively, immediately impacted my life and helped me. And uh, so I went on those programs because I couldn't work. No one was hiring. And, uh, and eventually the programs ended and I had to go back to work. But during COVID, I developed COPD and high blood pressure. And so now I'm not able to work full-time like I used to, and all the programs have ended. If I get COVID, I'm sunk. Um, I've managed to get my blood pressure and things, cholesterol under control to a degree, and I'm picking up, you know, a few jobs here and there. But it's not enough, and uh, creditors are calling. Uh, I need dental work, and I can't afford to get done. I need car repairs that I can't afford to get done. I need glasses. I can't afford to buy them. And uh, I I don't open my mail because I'm afraid to see what I owe. Um, uh, this is difficult. This is really difficult. Are you uh, receiving any government support of any kind now? Because the federal no, programs no. were always yeah. going to go away, and inevitably. Yeah, I know that. I know that. Um, I always, in, in my back pocket, in the back of my mind, I said, if it ever comes to it, I will apply for social services. I haven't needed to ever in my life, but I always held on to that possibility. And so I came to that a couple months ago, <clears throat> and I called, and uh, they said to me, uh, what's your husband's status? I said, well, he has cancer, stage four. I'm his caregiver. He's retired. He gets CPP and OH pension, $1,700 a month. And social services told me, oh, sorry, you make too much money. You're going to have to get him to support you and turn me down. And that was my last hope 
that we can't live on $1,700 a month is impossible. But they seem to think I could, and we can. Um, so I I don't know why I'm calling. I don't I don't expect anything. I. Oh, just a, just a second, only... Sandy. So is this call spurred by the fact that we had Minister John Abbott on yesterday about Absolutely. the new social economic Absolutely. well-being plan? Exactly. Okay. Exactly, because you know why? I, I started to hear him talk, and eventually the words were like blah, blah, blah to me. Because nothing is ever done. Uh, nothing, like I said, the CERB was the only thing that's ever happened in my life where I, I could actually breathe and stop and not have to worry. My husband has an appointment today with his doctor, and I have to go to work. And he has to walk to his doctor with stage 4 cancer. And that upsets me. That shouldn't be. So that said, Sandy, are you planning on engaging with the government on this front? Because that's exactly what no. this process is intended to do blah, up blah, until... Blah, blah, Patty. It's blah, blah, blah. Just, oh, let's, uh, study base. let's study basic income. Let's study it. Let's keep studying it. No, people... Okay. The government knows people are suffering. That's why they came out with CERB in lickety-split. Like, it was there. All of a sudden, oh, my goodness, I can't believe this. I can get this. Yeah. I can stay home with my husband. I don't have to... I think there's a difference in pandemic supports and ongoing government programs uh, for the obvious reasons. So I know people hear a lot of blah, blah, blah when they hear a politician speak, but I do think of when we get an opportunity, because remember, this is based on something that they're putting a lot of stock in, being the health accord, and if they are going to see this as the transitional document in how we offer health care in the province, anything that people want to chime in on, it's okay you do it on this program, but I would suggest even if you don't trust uh, politicians, all you hear is blah, 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 if your voice doesn't make a part of these consultations, then you're probably left an opportunity on the on the table that you maybe should have taken up. It's not for me to tell you what to do. You do exactly as no, you see fit. Well, I don't, I don't know what to do, Patty. All I, all I know is I have to keep working as much as I can just to keep the wolf from the door. Now, I, I, I honestly believe, I have no proof of this, but I honestly believe crime rates are up. I honestly believe domestic violence stats are up. I believe suicide rates are up. They're not, but that's good news. Well, it, it, to me, it's going to end up that way because people are desperate. I'm desperate. I don't know what to do. I don't know where to turn. I can't work any more than I'm working because I'm not physically well enough. And and it's just if the prices are gone crazy. I had to do a GoFundMe back in February of $2,000 to get us through the month. I applied for my doctor told me I shouldn't be working anymore. Uh, she and I filled out a form for disability. I applied for that. They told me it would take six months to find out if I qualified. Uh, three months into that, they contacted me and said, no, you're not sick enough. Even though my doctor said I was. So, you know, everywhere I turn, I'm turned down. I, I get, people tell me leads, oh, try this number. I spent 12 hours over three days on hold with different programs, only to be turned down for all of them. Well, if you're going to spend all those hours, and look, I hear some of these sad stories that it's just overwhelming sometimes, but if you're willing to spend 12 hours on hold, just consider, after we hang up and give it some thought, to put some of that time into that engagement process so that you can just be heard. Whether or not how? they. How do I okay, do that? I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I don't know how to do that. Okay, there's a couple of ways. 
So you can do it through Engage NL, which is the website where they have all their online consultations. But there's also the pledge coming from the minister in his office that they're going to have town halls, which would be my choice if I was uh, looking to engage any more than I already do with the department. So that's what I would do. You can stay tuned to this program. Every time we hear of a town hall in any nook or cranny in this province for that particular framework, that important program, you'll hear it on this show. You'll very hear, very likely hear it on VOCM News. So that much we can do to share the information. But you can go to a website called engagenl.ca. I'll give you the last word quickly, Sandy, before I have to go. Okay, well, I, thanks for the tip about the, that forum. I didn't know about that. I would definitely go to a town hall okay. and, and state my case because I don't know. I know there's lots of people out there like me, you know? I don't know. I don't know how people are affording to do to live anymore. I mean, uh, I hear you. So what I want you to do is uh, go to that particular webpage, engagenl.ca. You can start the engagement there. You'll hear from me when there's going to be a town hall close by where you live where you can attend. And then if all you hear is the blah, 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 that is what you're generally hearing today or in the past, get back to us and let us know what's going on. So do exactly that and we'll talk again soon. How's that? Thank you, Patty. You're welcome, Sandy. Take care. Have a good day. Bye. You too. Bye-bye. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to get an update from what's happening out in Grand Falls, Windsor from the town's mayor, Barry Manuel. Don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM, it's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. And welcome back. Let's go. Line two, say good morning to the mayor of Grand Falls, Windsor. That's Barry Manuel. Mayor Manuel, you're on the air. Yes, hello, Patty. Good morning. Can you hear me? I can hear you now. Yeah, okay. Uh, no, it's, uh, yeah, Barry and Central here. We've been engaged, as you know, in watching this forest fire now for a number of days. And I just wanted to, uh, you know, have a quick chat about some of the messaging we'd like to get out to the public. You know, the Premier's been uh, saying all along about the evacuation alert is in place and people should be ready. And I uh, just feel uh, lately, especially, that people feel maybe because the days are nice and we're not seeing a lot of smoke here that things may be okay. But this is still a very serious situation. We've got a forest fire that's burning out of control just 25 kilometers away from our community. Uh, we do expect that the wind directions are going to change now coming into tomorrow and Friday to southerly, which means that it would be blowing towards our community and the area. And we want to make sure that people have been prepared, that they're ready to go on a moment's notice, that they have all their things that they wish to take with them when it's time to go, that they have a place to go to. Uh, there is an emergency shelter that's been set up at the Deer Lake Arena for people who don't have a place to go. If you wanted to travel there uh, by yourself, you can in your own vehicle. If not, there's buses that are leaving town here at 11 a.m. and 5 p.m. daily. You can get them at either of the arenas and also in Bishop's Falls at Salvation Army Church. Um, I know we've been working closely with Bishop's Falls on this as well and with the province we've been getting three updates a day and just trying to keep a close eye on exactly what's going on. Especially today, Patty, the people who are most vulnerable in our community, the ones who could be susceptible to you know, uh, smoke inhalation. You really need to be taking this serious because it could be a very uh, much an instant that things could change, smoke would be upon us, and if you could take the opportunity to put your emergency plan into action, I think that would definitely be a good idea. And uh, obviously, you know, if you go away for a couple of days and or a few days and things uh, don't happen, 
there's no harm done. But if we do get in that worst case scenario, which is what we have to plan for, then we're really looking at uh, a situation that could be uh, bad if we don't have people who are taking the opportunity to get prepared uh, now that they can. Uh, let me see if I can say this the way I intend to. We spoke to a fellow earlier named Rob. He was he lost everything in the fire out in uh, Fort McMurray. So sometimes when we have very little to no time to collect what we want to take with us for an evacuation, now that you have an opportunity to prepare for the option of an evacuation, you know, take advantage of that. Because it's not just about the necessities of life, even if there's a few of those things that you just cannot replace. You just pack that bag, you leave it at the door, and at a moment's notice, if you think the air quality is now where you don't want it to be for your own overall health, and or there's some other reason, whether it be the proximity, whatever, you have an advantage now by being given the heads up. So take full advantage of it. Because I can only imagine, had you been in one of those communities, wherever there's been raging forest fires that have destroyed homes and people lost everything they had, don't don't wait till it's too late because even some of those sentimental little items that you would have packed, you might have forgot one or like whatever it is, just do it. There's no downside to it. Like I've had that thought. I remember doing the fundraiser for fun, uh, Fort McMurray on the radio thinking, what would I have taken? What would I have forgotten and been forever kicking myself saying, I wish I had to be prepared. So just take advantage. This is not an, an opportunity to be panicked. It's just an opportunity to be, be prepared. Hopefully people take it. Absolutely, Patty. Well said. And there are many examples. And the Fort McMurray one is one that a lot of people have been talking about and, and expressing their regrets in some cases because they weren't as prepared as what they should have been. We've been afforded some lead time here to be able to get ourselves prepared. Uh, there's been some misinformation, I guess, on social media. And it just gives me the sense that people have been lulled into a sense of uh, everything's okay here. And we hope indeed that it is. But there is certainly a very good chance that we may see smoke in the community that would be a risk to people's health and if you know people in your uh, family in your neighborhood who are especially um, you know vulnerable or uh, you know friends you got neighbors just check in on them you know and make sure you're getting your properties uh, your eave troughs clearing to make sure that your uh, your grass is mowed that you're you know you're far smarting your your property if you're in vehicles make sure you're putting on a circulator for your ear so that you're not taking in that uh, dangerous smoke if and when that time comes we've been working with the RCMP the ground search and rescue province red cross there's a lot of players in this uh, we have been working around the clock on logistics with the other players and we want to make sure that our citizens do their part to make sure that they're prepared their families are prepared in the event that we do have to evacuate yeah and again the the crafting of the message can sometimes be tricky for municipal leaders or for me or whatever but i did really appreciate the headline i saw the other day what you know people are prepared not panicked and that's the hope here because with a bit of leeway try not to look it's easy enough for me to say when i'm nowhere near the fires and i don't i just had a very bare whiff of them over the weekend easy enough for me to say don't worry don't be anxious don't stress out but if you can some of that alleviation of your stress can come with being a little bit prepared so i like the way you're discussing it i hope people hear it the way it's intended coming through this program this morning so if you are stressed out that bag that you walk by and see it at the door knowing that it's right there ready to go with the things you want to need Hopefully that gives you a reason to be a little less stressed out if you are.
Absolutely. Um, thanks, Patty. It's uh, time to be calm and patient and respectful as well. If we get into this situation, uh, we are very well prepared. Uh, everybody's been doing a good job getting ready. So we just need the assistance from our people to make sure that we're the most successful we can be in a possible evacuation and to be ready. Appreciate the time this morning, Barry. Thank you, Patty. Take care. Bye-bye. As Grand Falls, Windsor, Mayor Barry Manuel. When we come back, we're talking about conflict of interest. What kind? Don't know. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number five. Good morning, Kelsey Downer. You're on the air. Hi. Hi, Patty. How are you? Doing okay. Thanks. How you doing? I'm doing well. Um, firstly, we wanted to say um, that our hearts go out to those individuals that are impacted by forest fires. Um, I heard the conversation you had earlier with a gentleman, so we are definitely uh, thinking about those people. Um, I'm a volunteer with the Schizophrenia Society of Newfoundland, and we wanted to um, invite everyone that listens to Open Line to our concert that we're having on August 26th. Um, this is at the Legion. The concert's going to raise funds for uh, the Schizophrenia Society of Newfoundland. Um, we're going to have uh, acts of comedy, acts of dance, um, solo acts, as well as a band. So tickets are $20, and they can be purchased um, on our Eventbrite page by searching the Schizophrenia Society of Newfoundland. Um, and they can also be purchased through our email, which I can provide now, which is ed at ssnl.org. Um, so we wanted to sort of, I guess, extend the invite to all your listeners and hope that we can get some individuals to come to our concert because we are trying to raise as much money as we can. Um, and secondly, we are seeking a uh, volunteer sound person for our event. And if there is someone listening out there that can provide that, they can email uh, our executive director, Susan, again, at ed at ssnl.org. And I always have uh, Susan's email address on hand. She did indeed send me, and this outside the concert, she sent an email last, maybe last week. We were talking somewhere in the uh, umbrella or envelope of mental health, and I said uh, something about a schizophrenic. And she reminded me that we're now talking about someone who has schizophrenia as opposed yeah. to those types of labels. I just wanted to let her know that I got that email. I don't know if I responded or not. But yeah. you say the Legion, but it's not Branch 56 down on the boulevard in Pleasantville. It's Branch 1 on Black Marsh Road, just so people know exactly where they may be buying a ticket to. Yes, absolutely. No, that's a great point, Patty. Thank you. Are you Kelsey Downer, the musician? I am, yes. You are. Terrific. Are you performing? I am. I'm really excited, actually, for the opportunity to sing um, at the concert. Who else is performing? Can you wet people's whistle? Hmm. Can I? Well, you're going to uh, hear some comedy from Josh Mentions, who's a local comedian. You're going to hear a uh, few solo artists, um, and you're also going to see a little bit of a, sp a Spanish band as well as a belly dancing group. Terrific. So, you know, I, I know you're not going to be speaking on behalf of the association like maybe Susan Wood or could, but there's been a lot of conversations about mental health, and I think not only justifiably so, but hopefully it's been helpful. I don't know because, I, you know, it's not like I tiptoe around every single phrase or word, but it's important that we try to keep up with what are the best ways to talk about mental health for all the obvious reasons. Do you think the conversation has changed? In my seat, I think it has. I think it's changed for the better. Now, it's incremental change. Nothing is dramatically different when access to long-term care or what have you, but I do, I, I think I'm encouraged by the way the conversation has shifted, even if it's just in a small amount in the last couple of years. How about you? 
Absolutely. And I think uh, individuals are starting to refer uh, to people in, you know, person first language, you know, um, like Susan had mentioned to you, you know, we don't use the term schizophrenic. Now we say individual living with schizophrenia. And I think we're really trying as a society um, and as a community to put people first and um, people are not defined by their mental illness or, you know, anything else that they have going on. So I think, like you said, I think the conversation is shifting. And I think um, it's really crucial that we keep the conversation about mental illness going, particularly for those illnesses that are often um, hidden. You know, um, schizophrenia, a lot of people are suffering in silence um, and we're trying to give people a voice and really make some noise for them that night and uh, raise some money. Always part of the key. Awareness is great. Money is also very, very helpful when we talk about putting the programs and services in place. And uh, I throw this one out there again. I can't be preached because I'm no expert in anything, let alone mental illness. But even when we talk about a person-first approach and person-first conversation and person-first treatment, it's also probably helpful for even inside your own social circles or inside your family if we start to understand some of the differences, albeit plenty of overlap between mental illness, mental wellness, mental health, because when we take that extra step to figure out the differences, sometimes slight, it's more, we're more apt to understand how to talk about it. That could be in help, uh, some help to whether it be your association, an individual, or whatever the case may be, because sometimes when we conflate them all, we end up having a very circular conversation, which maybe doesn't flesh out the really underlying uh, causes, reasons and how the community reacts absolutely absolutely patty uh, listen kelsey let's give the details one more time i know there was an opportunity to get a ticket at the farmer's market but that's come and gone so i'll go to eventbrite twenty dollars a ticket to go and see what so you're going to see um, the concert on August 26th at the Legion on Black Marsh Road. Um, like we mentioned, there's a comedian, uh, some solo acts, a uh, dance group, and a band. Uh, you can buy tickets on the Eventbrite, or you can also email uh, Susan at ed at ssnl.org, and we would love to see you there. Good to have you on the show, Kelsey. Thanks a lot. Thanks, buddy. Take care. Bye-bye. Yeah, that I know people sometimes, and this is, again, when we're trying to help foster or move along the conversation or provoke or whatever the slightest bit of help that i got about trying to understand the difference between mental illness mental wellness and mental health just makes it a little bit easier to understand how the conversation shifts sometimes a little bit freely between the three but the differences make for a, i think a better well-rounded conversation about what's happening in the country because we know the mental health numbers especially in the last few years have been Made the conversation more important than ever, probably. Okay, let's take a break for the news. Don't go away. Join Brian Medor weekdays at noon for a comprehensive update on news from every corner on all levels. Newsmakers, weather, and more. Join us on your VOCM at noon. And welcome back to the show. This is the Conflict of Interest Conversation. Join us online, number one, is the independent member from Mount Pearl Southlands, Paul Lane. Paul, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you this morning? Great today. How are you doing? I'm doing great, great. Uh, Patty, before I get to my topic, two very quick things. First of all, uh, uh, you mentioned in your preamble we have a couple of Mount Pearl Marlins who uh, were on the podium at the uh, at the uh, Canada Games, so I just want to uh, say how proud we are of their accomplishments, and it's uh, good stuff for sure. Yeah, Chris Weeks and was Thomas Pelly, is that his name? Thomas Pelly, that's correct. Okay, yeah. good. So they both medaled, and uh, good for them, and I think it speaks to... Uh, 
the quality of the programming that uh, that the Mount Pearl Marylands are certainly putting off in this province. And I think if people looked a little bit closer, uh, we've done a lot of great things in the pool province-wide. We've produced some pretty great swimmers, you know, between Katarina Roxanne, of course, and her accomplishments, well-known. But we've got swimmers down in the NCAA. Owen Daly comes to mind. So we've yep. produced some pretty good swimmers in the last number of years, which I think is really encouraging. It's fantastic. It's fantastic. And like I say, it goes to show that even though we are, we've, how many times have we said it, even though we are such a small province, whether it be in, uh, in sports or in politics or in business or you name it, uh, Newfoundlanders, Labradorians certainly uh, punch above their weights, no doubt about it. Anyway, good to see. Yep. Um, Petty, uh, the other thing is, of course, I just want to, uh, I guess as others have done, just say my thoughts are certainly with the people of uh, central Newfoundland that are going through this uh, very unfortunate situation and just to uh, give a shout out and a big thank you to all the uh, the people on the ground the firefighters and uh, and the people who are operating the, uh, the 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 water bombers and so on as well as uh, as well as uh, businesses i see uh, mary brown stepped up to the plate i believe the aquaculture uh, company out there in the west coast has stepped out to help up uh, stepped up uh, to help out and of course we have groups like the red cross salvation army lions club and Lots of other community organizations and just individuals who are uh, stepping up as they always do when uh, their fellow Newfoundlanders and Labradorians are in need. So good on all of them. We certainly wish them the very best in the days to come. For sure. Anyway, uh, Patty, I just wanted to speak <clears throat> briefly about uh, conflict of interest, I guess, as it relates to government and government entities and so on. And it's sort of uh, uh, you had a caller there, I think it was last week. I'm pretty sure it was on this show. Uh, who sort of made reference uh, to it, and that sort of just sparked it in my mind. And, you know, he's right. Like, we do have conflict of uh, interest legislation legislation and policies throughout government in different areas, albeit I don't think it has the teeth that's required, and there's a lot of loopholes in my mind. But one of the things I believe he mentioned, and I did check it out, was that, like, if you were hired, for example, as a deputy minister or assistant deputy minister director that type of thing uh people who are not in the bargaining units say of NAEP or CUPE or whatever management employees in government um and, and these people are appointed unless we, we must remember uh, in a lot of cases um then they do have policies in place within government that basically says if you are in one of those positions you cannot uh while you're doing your job for example make uh use the information that you're gaining in those positions so that when you retire you can somehow benefit by what you did when you were in that government position so, uh, what are you referring to in particular paul i'm not referring to anyone in particular I'm, I'm just referring to the whole concept around conflict of interest i'm referring to the fact that if you're in government for example you have that that's a provision that's 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 in place there's also provision there that says for example that if you are in a position of this nature then after you retire from your position then for a full year you cannot do business with that government department like you can't now come to government and say i want to be a consultant to this particular department when i just retired from government in that department i also can't have a company where I owe, own more than 10% shares in that company and do business 
with that government department. I can't act as a consultant or a go-between for another company and so on because of uh, a, a conflict of interest that may exist where you're taking insider information and utilizing it for your own personal benefits. So, well, and it's access. You know, that's, I think, the most important part of that right. cooling off period is the access. And there's differences yep. between being in government. You could be... Yep an elected official you could yep. be uh, a senior bureaucrat you could simply right. be one of the working crowd inside one department or other or and i think this words come to pass a little bit more frequently in the recent past is you yep. can be appointed to a quasi arm's length board a review board a committee a task force that's where it gets trickier for me it's no sweat to identify conflicts inside the house of assembly no problem but it gets exactly. a little bit more dicey when we talk about like whether it be the premier's economic recovery team whether it be the Churchill River uh, uh, Energy Analysis Team, whether it be Task Force NL, whether it be the 2041 Group, that's where it does become and presents a lot of gray. Correct, and that's exactly where I was going to. I know it's taken me a while to get there, but I was trying to preamble it by the fact that if you have a government-appointed job, as an example, that there are mechanisms in place. Now, that mechanism, as far as I'm concerned, those policies need to be reviewed because there's all kinds of loopholes there for example that exists however the cabinet or the minister or, or whatever can waive can waive that requirement not to do business for a year so I mean, what's the point of having it if it could be waived by the government and so on so uh, like i think that needs to be looked at but the point and that's where, where i was going and that's where you've just gone is, is that to the best of my knowledge when it comes to uh, boards agencies boards commissions and a lot of times they're political appointments task force all this kind of stuff, then you have individuals that are being appointed to these entities and they are gaining access to what, if you and I went looking for the information, we'd be told, I'm sorry, you can't know any of this because it's commercially sensitive information. But if I'm on these task force, I get access to it. And to the best of my knowledge, there are no provisions in place uh, that I can find, and maybe I'm wrong and someone can correct me, but to the best of my knowledge, there don't exist to say if you're going to get involved with this stuff, then you cannot, leave, you, you, you cannot be involved in this today and then tomorrow start doing business with or putting in proposals or being involved with any kind of a company or entity or consulting uh, on work where you're using information that you gained on the inside for your own benefit yeah, some, some of it becomes that needs to be that needs to be dealt with yeah there's just so many case by cases right i mean there's a difference Absolutely. between going to work for a company in the supply side oil and gas as a consultant or a lobbyist or the director of business development versus going to work the special olympics right that's where it becomes yeah. once again quite tricky right. because access is access but access for uh philanthropic efforts is vastly different than looking right. for government contracts that's where we Correct. you know we have to have declared conflicts and understand why and people being honest and upfront and transparent say this is this person yes they were the assistant deputy minister of whatever which was access to one point but if they're trying to raise money and awareness or get a, a time with the minister to talk about special olympics or minor baseball they're different things totally listen i agree with you one thousand percent they are totally different and i'm not referring to those scenarios i'm referring to when 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 uh, when the knowledge that's being gained from the inside is being used for financial gain so on and business gain or whatever the case might be on the outside and that that is the concern that i have that i don't think 
we have the safeguards in place. And, you know, I, I've heard the Premier talk about, you'll make a statement, which I, I thought was... I thought was a bit of a foolish statement to make, really. You know, we're all in a conflict of interest, and it's how we manage it. And personally, I just don't, uh, I just don't subscribe to that. And this whole idea of Chinese walls, conflict walls, blind trusts, all that, as far as I'm concerned, is just a joke. And uh, it really needs to be. All this stuff needs to be looked at because if you want people to have con- the people of Newfoundland and Labrador to have confidence in government and confidence in processes and and feel that things are being done above board and everything then you know there there has to be you cannot have a situation where there is either real and or perceived conflicts of interest existing and that's where we need to make sure that the rules are are are, are as such that it prevents as much as possible as that from happening and that can be around these kind of policies it can be around political party donations and 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 all that kind of stuff which is a, another issue I it is know. another issue but it still ties into the same concept of of buying influence or gaining influence because of who you know and so on so i i just this gentleman raised this i think last week and i thought it was a good point and, uh, and the time to bring this up again because it all ties into democratic uh, reform and so on that's uh, dear that that is sorely lacking in this province and conflict of interest in this small province is definitely an issue in my opinion that needs to be addressed appreciate the time paul thanks for the call Thank you, Patty. All the very best. Take care. Bye-bye. That's Paul Lane, of course, independent member. Mount Pearl Southlands. Let's take, take a break. But when we come back, we're going up to Niagara, Ontario, to say good morning to Gary Martin. Gary is the Newfoundland and Labrador chef de mission, the head of mission for the Newfoundland and Labrador's entrance into the Canada Summer Games 2022. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number three, say good morning to the NL chef de mission, the head of the mission for our Canada Summer Games team. That's Gary Martin. Gary, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you doing today? I couldn't be better. How about you, Gary? Well, it can't get much better up here for uh, Team Newfoundland and Labrador. I mean, Petty, the the host kept saying the last two years that it'll be a phenomenal games, and and I can only say for from Team NL's perspective, it's just been absolutely phenomenal from uh, the day we landed here at uh, Niagara Regional Airport, which was um, actually a bit of a first. Uh, it was the first 737 aircraft to land at Niagara Regional Airport, and Team NL had a hundred. 28 uh, members of the contingent on it and we were just welcomed with open arms and it was just uh, it was just a a fabulous start to uh, a fabulous run of days that we've had here yeah before we get into some of the accomplishments uh, on the pitch and in the pool or what have you uh, and of course the whole camaraderie about it I mean competition is there and it's the foremost either the best young athletes in the country but for many of them it's the first time they've been around multidisciplined games like the Canada Summer Games so it has its own feel and flair but before we get to you describing that one of your assistants Tom Godden do you guys coordinate your sneakers in the morning or was that happy coincidence uh, no, that's a coordination of our sneakers, yeah, and uh, so it's looking pretty good. Uh, one or the other, our, our friends at Team Sask uh, have got the green sneakers going on, so uh, yeah, it's all about the, the Team NL swag and presentation, so yeah. <laughs> I love it, Gary. Say hello to Tom for me. Okay, let's get into it. We've been at a lot of competitions. This is not your first go-around at the Canada Summer Games. I've been to a few. The competition, of course, rules the roost. Everybody has trained for years to be in this position look for a personal best or a step on the podium but the air of camaraderie amongst the athletes is really palpable you can feel it everywhere you go 
Yeah, and, you know, there's a lot of things that contribute to that. And I think, uh, you know, I mentioned the landing at the airport, and uh, it, it becomes infectious. So, you know, we've seen, we're seeing a little bit of a bit of uh, success in, in the pool and some success on the courts and some other sports. And I think it spreads throughout the team, and uh, everybody is just having a, having a blast here. And uh, everybody is, I think, uh, benefiting from the work that they put in, uh, you know, with the extra year that we had uh, to the success here in Niagara. There's a difference. I admitted earlier on in the program this morning, back in 2017 when I went to watch my young fellow play in Winnipeg, we got one medal. And I said something along the lines of, you know, we need to talk about the level of competition, funding for sports, the type of cultures we get to do better on that front. As the chief, the mission chief, how do you and your team and all the athletes measure success? Is it about the combination of fun and competition? Is it about personal best? Is it about the medal count? Because the comp- competitive athlete comes out of me and I thought, you know, medals are really great. But maybe I've just become a little bit milder as I've got a bit older. How do you measure success? Well, Patty, that's an interesting point, um, and we recognize that, well, I guess, when we were appointed as chef team, and we reached out to uh, Dr. David Hancock, and we took, you know, we realizing we're a small province and the, against the big superpowers, I mean, it's a numbers game to some degree, so we took on uh, Dr. Hancock and worked with, we took the approach that the teams work individually with their own, you know, strength and conditioning, their own uh, performance coaches. So we had Dr. Hancock engaged in a mental training or a little bit of a shift in a, in a performance. And we had we came up with Dr. Hancock, you know, do your best, nothing less is our motto. So that's, that's if that's a personal best, uh, that's good. If that's a medal for you, that's good. And I really think that we're seeing the benefits of that and uh, here today. And we also sort of, you know, try to take the thing take the approach that uh, team newfoundland labrador as we all know is a is a team and at any given day in sport as we know there's a lot of variables with whether that's a race a hockey game whatever the case may be anything can happen so never underestimate your ability to to do your best and your best may result in a medal so that's kind of what we had the approach that we we took and i think we're seeing that here i mean there's there's some medals there's some personal bests there's there's some significant improvement uh for team team nl over the 2017 games in winnipeg so we're very happy how do the other athletes, how do you want them to think about some of the things they've seen, whether it be the national attention for Jada Lee or a gold medal for Chris Weeks in the pool or the sevens first time since 2009 in the games? Baseball, we beat New Brunswick last night. How do you want the athletes to build off some of the good news they're seeing in other disciplines? I, I mean, I think, I think this is a real, you know, for the province, and I, and I mentioned that we're hosting in 2025, I think it's a real showcase and an opportunity here for our team and our members that are participating to take take those experiences home, tell their buddies and their friends, and to really ignite and put a fire under all the athletes in Newfoundland and Labrador, and to to know what it, get a taste of what it takes to be successful, whether it's a personal best, whether it's a medal, whether it's a fifth place finish, fourth place finish, whatever that may be, and to take that work ethic back home and let's get rolling for 2025. 
The 17 games, Rod Snow was the chief or the chef, and that was at least the second time. And, you know, to get to that spot, you would have had to join forces as a member of the mission for a variety of different roles before you get to the top job. Describe your day, Gary, because you and Tom and others, you're not just there going from venue to venue checking it out. There's a long day for the mission staff. So describe your day and what your role is in the ongoing athletic competitions. Yeah, our typical day starts at 7 a.m. with a uh, with a full uh, meeting and debriefing meeting with all our provincial territorial uh, partners. Uh, we get into that meeting, uh, which takes usually anywhere from an hour to an hour and a half. Then we come and we debrief our mission team, our 13 member for week one here mission team, in any updates. That information then goes and transfers over to the coaches, so they're queued up. And then the day is uh, we're monitoring and visiting all the sports. We try to get out to all the sports uh, each day. And, of course, then there's the issue is whether if there's something for medical or there's a logistic piece for transportation or there's something with dietary. Um, you know, and then there's the social pieces in the evening where, like, um, mission nights where there's a little bit of a chance for our, all our missions to take a couple of hours and, and have a beverage and uh, and socialize type of thing. So, uh, and there's never, it's very fluid. Uh, it's never a dull moment. There's always some little thing that comes up, but uh, I guess, Patty, there's an opportunity for, for me to, to just really thank the host here in Niagara. You know, they have had a bit of a, a rough go, you know, with the COVID delay and a few things like that, but they're doing an absolute fabulous, fabulous job. I had a conversation with uh, Kellyanne, the uh, president of uh, Candy Games Council the other day, and she said, hey, Gary, she said, how are things going? And I said, Kellyanne, absolutely fabulous. She says, absolutely scary. She said, because I'm not hearing much, you know, in terms of the little things. And I said, no, Kellyanne, I said, it's, it's been absolutely fabulous. So kudos to them and the the over 4,000 volunteers that they got here on the ground. Just, yeah, it's, it's a good job. Uh, a quick word. So there's, you know, of course, it's great to see the PBs and the medals. It's absolutely brilliant, and hopefully everyone has a great experience regardless. But history made is something that we have to talk about a little bit here. When Jada Lee took to the mound in the fourth inning the other night against Alberta, the first pitch she threw, which I believe was a swing and a strike, swing and a miss, that ball was immediately taken out of the game. It's headed for the Canadian Baseball Hall of Fame in St. Mary's, Ontario. That's an extraordinary story, and it's not just making waves here. That's making waves nationally. I've had a peek at a bunch of the other team uh, provincial teams accounts and they're all latching onto it that must be something that is reverberating throughout the games it's 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 every day patty it's daily requests for interviews are are, are constantly coming in uh jada uh, was our flag bearer i think as you're aware yep. and uh, she just she just she carried that flag so to speak with so much pride she has a real personality that goes with this I guess newfound fame she's very social uh, she's chatting you know she was chatting with her other flag bearers uh, she organized a little TikTok video at the uh, at the press conference the opening press conference and um, she was telling me Patty this is a little bit of an interesting thing uh, in the lead up to coming here to the games um, I think there was a little bit of publicity on this she was getting texts and emails from young girls from right across the country congratulating her on her accomplishment and this is just this is just a story that's you know one of those that's a little bit outside of the realm of the competition and the medals but it it's it comes into what the games is all about you know that cultural that 
socialization, uh, develop, how athletics and sport develop people to be good young ambassadors and future leaders in, in our province and in the country. Uh, Gary, congratulations to you and the mission team and, of course, all the athletes and their managers and coaches and parents and friends, everyone that's part of that sporting community, part of bringing it together for the Canada Summer Games this go-around. And we certainly look forward to hosting here in St. John's. I'll be a volunteer, whatever it takes, but just being around that type of event is good for the sporting soul. Good to have you on, Gary. Thanks, Patty. And just, just a note from us here at Team, N- Team NL, as we monitor, we'd certainly like to send out a, a stay safe to, to our folks in central Newfoundland around the forest fires and just make sure that everybody's safe and hopefully that all settles down and there's there's no issues. We have some uh, West Coast athletes from the western side of the province that are due to come in and uh, change over day to 14th. So we look forward to seeing them and uh, we wish everybody well. Stay safe with the forest fires. Here, here. Maybe we can make time here on the show. Maybe you can make time, pardon me, for a week to update sometime next week. Absolutely, Patty. Absolutely a pleasure. Thanks, Gary. I'll say hello to to Assistant Chef Gordon. There you go. Please do. (laughs) Thanks, Gary. Have a great day. You too, man. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Gary Martin, he's the NL Chef de Mission for the Canada Summer Games. And, of course, here they come. There's uh, there's always going to be controversy, you know, whether it be infrastructure but there's a lot of money coming from the federal government, number one. Some money coming from the provincial government for those in and around the St. John's metro region. So there is the concept of infrastructure legacy, and the numbers are what the numbers are. My experience in 17 and some of the aftermath is not only there was an economic boost in Winnipeg, not because I say so, because they say so. The city said, I think it was like a month later when they had a chance to reconcile all the documents and the financials, get input from various uh, sectors. They say in a two-week period, they had an injection of -of out-of-province money to the tune of $17 million. That's hard to replicate. You know, same thing when people were kind of wondering whether or not the briar would bring forward the reward based on the uh, investment and return on said investment. And it was about a $10 million injection of out-of-province money. And there's nothing quite like money from out-of-province. Let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, we're speaking with you. Don't go away. Weekday mornings from 530 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM morning show. Welcome back to the program. Uh, let's go to line number six. John, you're on the air. Oh, uh, good morning, Patty. Hi, John. Patty, they're coming out with electric cars now. They are. And everywhere they're putting in these charging stations. You know, you, your, your vehicle's only going to go, your battery's only going to last so long, and you have to charge them up. Mm-hmm. Now, <clears throat> since the 1900s, We've had cars that have been operating, and they're operating on a battery. The battery starts them up and keeps the all electronic parts of them going, and it runs with the motors running. Mm-hmm. I don't know why they can't have the electric motor once that start, once that electric car starts. Why they can't have a thing on it like the alternator or the generator to, that were used at one time and uh, recharge the batteries as, as you're running. Well, there are some recharging mechanisms. Like, for instance, in some models, I believe part of the braking uh, does some recharging, just like it does in some race cars. But the battery technology is just vastly different uh, in what you would have the battery my vehicle that, you know, it can run the wipers and the alternator and the, the uh, running lights and things. So I just think it's a different battery technology. But I totally get your point. Part of the advancement will be how the 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 
machine itself and the battery itself has some recharge opportunities, which will never be in full. You'll never be able to max out your recharge with pressing the brakes or coasting downhill or what have you. But I imagine that's all part and parcel with trying to improve the technology, John. Well, I think it should be, you know, because uh, eventually, you know, these things like uh, if you saw, if you watch Star Trek, you know, <laughs> you're going to be out out somewhere somewhere where there's no charging stations, and, and you're going to need uh, something that'll be able to charge you, charge you up. Either that or, or, or carry a, a generator around with you. Yeah, no, that's not going to be the option for many. No, it's like everything else in this world. You know, someone says, well, where am I going to get all these generating stations? Well, I think it'll probably follow a very similar course to now why we see so many gas stations everywhere. It's because people need them. So the province is already engaged in putting these fast charge systems between them and Nalcor uh, across the highway. There's, uh, what, 14 in the first phase, another bunch going in now. Different municipalities are putting them in. So it's a matter of if you build it, they will come. And people aren't going to buy electric vehicles or hybrids unless they have a place to charge them up, right? So I guess one comes with the other. That's true. Now, there's one other thing I'd like to pick your brain with. Go ahead. Uh, what was your understanding to the amount of raise that the senior citizens were going to get, the 75-year-old senior citizens were going to get July 1st? 10%. 10%. Yeah. Right. And I got my... Uh, raise. Yep. And I got 8.2%. I don't. I wouldn't be able to tell you exactly why that is. So, the 75 and overs, their amount, their maximum, I think, for if your if your income was less than what was it, 130 grand, then you got a 733 dollars. Is that the number? Oh, I'm not sure. Yeah, okay. But it bo- the both schedule would be 10%. It was 75 and over, got a $500 one time, and a 10% increase thereafter. Yeah, that's what I thought it was, too. Yeah. And that's what I was uh, hoping I would get. But I got, uh, I would have gotten, in that case, I would have gotten uh, uh, $118.45. But I got $97.97. Is there, has there been a change in your income? No. Okay. Because that's the only thing that comes to mind as to why there might be a difference beyond 10%. So I'm not exactly sure how to answer that. If there hasn't been a change in your income, I don't know why there'd be change in the math of what is 10%. So where would I check on that? Well, I suppose at Canada.ca, there's all these tables for benefit amounts coming off, whether it be a guaranteed income supplement or old age security. There are fairly accessible tables that you can go there. For instance, if I just Googled up uh, OAS... 10% increase, it'll very likely bring me right to that uh, Canada.ca page, and there you can look at how much you should receive, benefit tables based on income is going to be there, how things are adjusted to the, what are they called, the uh, consumer price index. So that's what I would do, John, because it, it is fairly easy to manage. Do you use the internet? Yes. Yeah, just Google old age security 10% uh, uh, increase, and that'll be the first page, I'm pretty sure. Okay, thank you. No problem at all. Have a good day. Same to you, sir. Bye-bye. Let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, we're speaking with you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Uh, let's try this one with line two. Caller, you're on the air. Hello, me? Hello, you. Okay. Patty, I would like to have your ideas and your perspective on something that I've been wondering for some time, and other people have too. Okay. And that is the constant reminder that we have a very high unemployment rate. At the same time, we hear many, many people saying they can't get workers. They cannot, restaurants having to close, restaurants can't be open all the time, and other businesses cannot get workers. Now, I understand that 
there are some people who simply cannot work. But I think most people can find some work that they can do in some way. Now, maybe they're having to go to the soup kitchen and all these other things, uh, the gathering place, because what they earn is not quite enough. Or maybe they don't know how to cook or buy food economically. But I keep hearing this big disconnect between the need for workers and the high unemployment rate. What are your ideas on that? There's uh, so many variables, it's hard to know where to start. One of the numbers that doesn't get included in unemployment conversations when StatsCan releases the numbers is labor participation, which is a really important layer of context when we talk about how many people are unemployed because if you're no longer looking for a job, you don't fall into the unemployed category. That's number one. Secondly, if you're talking about supports and services like the gathering... Excuse me for interrupting, but no longer looking for a job, that may be part of the reason that people aren't getting jobs. Well, I'm just trying to add the context that's important to numbers because if you're not if you're not participating in the labor force actively looking for a job, you get lost in the count. So I, I just think that's important to get a clear picture of what numbers mean. Mm-hmm. Secondly, if you are using services, say for instance like the gathering place, which is all encompassing, it might be for a clean pair of socks, a dental checkup, oh, a bite to eat. Yeah. You also have to factor in that we'd probably have a full suite of potential mental health concerns. There will be obviously some health concerns, which makes you potentially less than a desirable candidate for work. So I think there's a lot of different things when we talk about going to St. Vincent de Paul versus going to the gathering place as an ongoing Mm -hmm. patron or client. I I don't know what the right word is there. Mm -hmm. Also, there is a distinct issue with certain people at a certain age whether or not a service job is for them. There's also the problem where there's people willing to, if there's a program they can take advantage of versus take an entry-level job, they probably don't want the entry-level job. Mm-hmm. There's, I mean, it, uh, there's just so much to yes. it. I'm not sure yes. if I'm getting to the crux of your concern. Maybe well, if you want to share your opinion, I can react to it. I don't know. I really don't know. I just think it's really strange. And I realize that for some reason, people are not asking for jobs, are not looking for jobs, and I don't know all the reasons for that. But I know that there are also many people who have learned to work, even though they have some mental issues, that they have had the counseling and whatever necessary to help them, so that there are improvements in all those areas. But I, I notice that the people who seem to be coming in from other countries um, seem to get out and find jobs very quickly. They seem to be more eager to get a job. And I'm <clears throat> thinking about, well, quite a few people who have come from other countries in the last while who are out there getting jobs and taking whatever. And in my experience, when I needed money, I took crummy jobs, really crummy jobs, but anything to make a living and to have the food I need and the other things. And I just wonder if there is a certain lack of will or is our parents giving young people too much money or I just don't understand why we have this reputation of the high unemployment and yet jobs go empty. Like everything else, uh, there's no one broad stroke that really 
adequately encapsulates all of the different issues? A couple of things. Like, for instance, with the Ukrainian refugees, they don't qualify for some of the income support programs. So consequently, not only the need to get out of work if the language barrier isn't too intense, mm-hmm. plus they may indeed be living in a communal setting amongst fellow refugees as they try to put down roots and mm-hmm. set up shop and what mm-hmm. have you, mm-hmm. versus there's also the thought that you might not be getting paid to work in an industry or a business where you're treated well enough to be willing to take $13 an hour. That, and these are mm-hmm. some things people mm-hmm. tell me. Mm-hmm. Also, mm-hmm. there's the likelihood that more and more are at home with the different needs for how much money it takes to keep the wolf away from the door. If you're living with your parents mm-hmm. or some other family members, mm-hmm. your needs are different from someone who's living on their own. So oh, I agree with all of those. I mean, there are many, many reasons. But it seems that the, from what I hear from other people and on the news, too, uh, that we have this reputation for being not really willing to work people. Uh, too many people, I should say, too many people. And yet we have doctors and nurses who are working their heads off. We have people uh, working in, in many different businesses who are just exhausted by working so hard. And yet there seems to be this great lack of people available and willing to work in so many different jobs that the the businesses are going under are struggling. You're touching on some of the issues that I try to talk about. Like there's a labor shortage nationwide. Whether people want to believe it or not, there actually is. The numbers are quite clear. Yeah. For me, yeah. you know, like even if we're talking about uh, unemployment as it pertains to what people call entry-level jobs, if I was, if I had my druthers, if I had any say in the matter, which I do not, I would have so much more of a keen focus on what happens in the K-12 system, even, even tracking people who are chronically absent from schools, as some mm-hmm. 10% of the mm-hmm. students. Mm-hmm. The, inside of that number, those who are chronically absent, 75% of them never get through high school. Mm-hmm. The, the mm-hmm. need and the global competitiveness for jobs, mm-hmm. the post-secondary or additional job training, that's where I would put a, the vast majority of my energy. Mm-hmm. If you're 45 years old now, it's it's hard to turn back time. It's hard to turn back the clock. It's hard to get training that will mm-hmm. mean for long-term, meaningful, mm-hmm. gainful employment. Me, I'm starting in K-12 preparing people to get a job. You're not allowed to quit school at 16. We're going to help you find careers that work for you, and we're going to track how and why and where you are, why you weren't in school, and what we can do about it. Those types of things. And you wouldn't get out of the Marriage Penitentiary without your GED if I was the warden either. I think that sounds very <laughs> sensible. Is none of that happening now? Some of it is, but not enough. Nowhere near enough. Mm-hmm. We have well, a literacy rate problem. I mean, look no further than that. We have an adult literacy problem. That speaks volumes to me. When you talk about the ability to find a job, the attractiveness that you present as a candidate, some of those are compromised when we have the percentage that we do that are, by definition, not literate. That's where... The focus where I like to pay more attention than maybe some of the public conversation it includes is inside K-12, chronically absent. What happens in high school? Not allowed to quit at 16. Mm-hmm. Some things that we're, you know, we have you as a captive audience. Mm-hmm. Doing more to put you on a good track and then job training, which might not include having to go to a, a post-secondary school and look for a particular vocation. But if you have trouble reading and writing, you're going to have trouble working, unless you find yourself in an industry where that's not the be-all and end-all, and there's plenty of that out there. But I think your question has 25 minimum answers and Mm -hmm. 25 areas of concern that we need to understand more about, do more work on. Well, it just seems that we have this poor reputation of being chronically in this situation. Uh, And I realize it's across Canada, but I find it really puzzling why this is the case and why none of the things you've just 
discussed have not been addressed through the years. And for my own, you know, I would be willing to take on, as I said, a really crummy job just to have something to do to earn some money and to work my way up. And it seems like that's the attitude of so many young people who come in from other countries. They're willing to take anything just to get on the ladder to step up. But that doesn't seem to be the attitude here for so many younger people. Let me add, the unemployment numbers, when they're offered as a provincial number, <coughs> if you back out Metro, the opportunities to work inside, of course, the most densely part of the province is extremely different than it is other parts of the province. Mm -hmm. So when the unemployment rate is whatever, pick a number, 14% mm -hmm. in one part of the southwest coast, mm -hmm. some of that is there is not a job where you live. So mm -hmm. it's easy enough to say that everyone's looking for workers. That might be more true in Metro mm -hmm. versus other parts of the province yes. where jobs yes. just aren't there. Yes, I understand And they all that. add up to that big number that we conflate as yes. being reflective of the entire province. You're right about that. But I do also read about people who can find a job and need a job, and they think up a job in the, you know, in the rural areas. They, they see a need that needs filling, and they just start the job, or they start the business, or they start doing something. And I, and I think about the people who walk all over town with a cart full of bottles and cans just to, they wear themselves out, and it's exhausting what they do to earn some money, take them to the recycling. And I have such respect for those people who go to such uh, lengths to earn some money. Well, thank you for your ideas. I appreciate that. I appreciate your time. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Take Bye. care. Bye-bye. It, it's a fair question, but it's also an extremely complicated question. There's a different set of circumstances if you're talking about someone living on the Northeast Avalon versus potentially other parts of the province. But I do think, for sure, and I've brought this up, I don't even know how many times, but just think about it out loud. If you're chronically absent in school, and that adds up to about 6,600 students across the K-12 system. 75% of those chronically absent never get through high school. It doesn't mean you have zero opportunities in this world if you don't graduate high school, but the possibilities to be forever scrambling and to struggle to find long-term gainful employment is absolutely a much more, much more prominent and prevalent issue than if indeed you chase different opportunities through post-secondary training, job training, and what have you. Someone's just said people are chasing job training opportunities one after the other, I guess career job trainers. But until we figure out some of those things, then we're going to continue to have a real disparity between haves and have-nots, those with opportunities and those without. There has been a reduction in the numbers of people that rely on social assistance in this province. There's a variety of reasons why. There, uh, I'm not going to go too far with that one. But unless you have a well-trained, well-educated populace in an ever-shrinking world, you're going to be swimming upstream. So if we're not completely 100% on top of that, we're probably going to struggle more than we necessarily should. You want to pick up on the complexity of the, uh, complexities of that conversation? I'm happy to try it after this. Don't go away. Let's take a break. When we come back, we're speaking with and the news. I was speaking with John about the process of getting into a personal care home, and then there's a pension issue out with what was once the plant, or the, yeah, the plant out in Central. Abitibi, don't go away. Every Saturday is perfect for a night at the cabin. The Cabin Party with Brian O'Connell. Saturday night starting at 7 p.m on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's try line number three. John, you're on the air. 
Uh, good morning, sir, and thank you very much for taking my call. My pleasure. Um, I just wanted to touch base um, uh, today to discuss my experiences with trying to get my mom into a personal care home, as well as eventually having to come to a point where I had to take over her personal finances because she was struggling in that area. Okay. And I've called your uh, program over the past months, probably even beginning back as far as February, to sometimes vent frustration as well as to get advice as to who to turn to. And I want to say up front that I want to thank your program, your producers especially, and that for even going out of their way to uh, follow up, getting phone numbers for me, et cetera, and calling me outside of uh, the show. So appreciate that to the people behind the scenes there. So uh, through this process, uh, there are some things that I'd like to, I guess, put forward that just need some consideration, I guess. And uh, the first one would be, um, I'm thinking about a province-wide requirement to pass a basic cognitive test in a doctor's office or with some trained health care professional. Uh, once you reach, let's say, the age of 80 years, let's pick a, just a figure randomly here right now, basically just to see if you still, uh, if there are any concerns with the fact that you're operating a car or uh, how you're doing in terms of managing your affairs. And I say this because right now uh, it seems to me a lot of the onus is on the individual families to try and say, you know, we're seeing problems where uh, you're, you're you're literally fighting with your parents to say something like, I think you need to go into testing. The parents are resistant uh, to doing that. And it gets to be a family feud when, in fact, if we had a standardized testing that you just go in and you just have some things just to see if there are any identified concerns. And I would say on that, Patty, that... Uh, you know, many elderly people, well, certainly all of us, we develop strategies to hide things like our problem areas or things we're not good at. Like, for example, my mom, who is profoundly deaf, like tested in an audiology uh, environment as being 70% hearing loss, went into the doctor's office, and basically because she convinced somebody that she can hear you perfectly. So, you know, just I think there should be some kind of testing just to see if people can pass a general, simple MMSE kind of cognitive test and or if there just are any concerns, maybe if just some general questioning around their personal affairs and that, just to see if we need to go further to see if they need help. So I'll just get your opinion on that first. Well, it kind of depends on why we're asking someone to take that uh, specific test. Like you mentioned, driving or versus managing your own finances. Once you've reached the age of 80, you need to have that test in an effort to uh, renew your license. So that's kind of been backed up because there's a public safety issue involved. If you're talking about the ability to manage your own bank account or to, you know, whatever daily uh, pieces of business that you need to attend to, that's a different conversation where I don't even know if the government could put anything in place that could oversee that. I mean, for some, for instance, I shouldn't bring my own family into it, but my mother <laughs> is smarter and tougher than me at the age of 80, and for her to be asked b just because of the age on the calendar to take such tests would be unnecessary spend of money and a general insult towards her. And I know many others like her. So how could it be taken, and this is just an honest question, how Absolutely. could it be backed out of the family responsibility to take matters into their own hand? The, the driver's license one, we've got a process in place because, of course, if you're on the road, then your personal safety and mine is a question that needs to be addressed. But for these other issues, whether it be refer refer 
referrals with Seniors NL and some advice to be offered by organizations like that. How do you put the legislative requirement in? Because we're not talking about them getting any additional government support necessarily. We're talking about how the family will have conversations on these very tricky familial matters in their own home. Absolutely. And, and in saying this, I'm not uh, suggesting, in, I, I'm suggesting the, uh, some general questioning sometimes in, uh, I'll say, a medical uh, interview or something like that when people are in an elderly thing, just to see if there are any red flags that somebody can just say to family members, you know, that we have some concerns, you might want to consider getting uh, some advice or, or uh, looking into some things. And uh, they, could, like, they could be as simple as, uh, you know, for example, in my own parents' case you know they have absolutely no idea about how much they pay for bills or like just even have an inquiry do you stay in an apartment you know how much does that cost you or something if people have no basic understanding of their finances it just might be a trigger that a, a medical person could contact somebody that's in the family to say you know just uh, have an eye out to make sure they're doing okay that's what I'm thinking about there. I, I think I get it. You know, I suppose maybe like inside the Seniors Advocates Office, a resource they may have access to or Seniors NL, even if it's just some helpful advice with how yeah. to start the conversation. Because yes. for many of us, I mean, this is not about me personally, but I have friends of mine whose parents are aged. So when they talk about driving their car, when they talk about power of attorney, when they talk about the daily operations and the risk to slip and fall in their own home, once you start that conversation with a proud independent senior they might get their back up and the conversation stops before it begins <laughs> so maybe yes. there are methods or mechanisms or a piece of advice you can get from people in the know who deal with these issues day in and day out that can really make it more manageable for you or others listening who are thinking it's time to have that conversation with mom or dad or nan or pop <laughs> or whatever the case may be yeah. so I, I, I don't know if I have much more thought on that matter no, no, that's exactly that's exactly the extent I'm thinking about. Um, the the second thing that I'd like to raise here is it would be very nice here right now to I guess have some people uh, maybe streamline like a website or some kind of information sources to outline processes and timeframes as to what you would need to do if, for example, you're trying to get your elderly parent or grandparent into a home. You know who because there's a lot of players involved with this, as you know, like you know doctors, social workers, home home care, therapists, everything, like we just mentioned, the DMV, you know, even banks and that. Like, There's a, a ton of people involved that all require different forms and protocols and so on. And when you're trying to uh, kind of, I guess, look for all of these, you end up, oh, I wish I had known that like a month ago. I would have been started that process. So the communication between a lot of these groups is often poor. And I can tell you that, uh, you know, for example, I had a social worker visit the home, a lovely uh, person, went through some testing with my mom and was recommended that we have further testing at the Miller Center. I contacted the Miller Center, who told me basically, I contacted the very department that I was supposed to go to, who told me, you know, we don't look at this kind of uh, um piece anymore. It was a question around some financial, uh, you know, taking over some financial assistance. And they said, they don't do that. Sent me back to the GP. And I went through the, the round circle, which took literally over a month to go backwards and go through the all again. And at the end of the month, and uh, I got a call from the Miller Center asking basically if a certain date was okay for my appointment for the, the consult. And I was like, I called you a month ago and I was told that you no longer do this by your own department. 
so there's some communication issues and of course we all know the uh, the feeling of uh, having a website that, that has a generalized phone number that sends you down a rabbit hole you know press one press five do this is at the end of it you often have to leave a message and I know that they're very short staffed and the people there are very compassionate but like typically I mean one of the workers I dealt with was out of retirement working two days a week just trying to deal with you know an overwhelming number of people oh look obviously um, I don't know if you have used the seniors and L website but I tell you what it is a treasure trove of info so it's just seniors and and at the very top there's a bunch of tabs you know the standard ones yeah. uh, home and news and events and stuff but there was one called resources you hit it and it has the option to browse by topic you can get an alphabetical listing of all services that may be be something that you're talking about inside your world, whether it be mom, dad, nan, or papa, senior citizen. And there are, I can't even tell you how many links. There's hundreds. So if you're looking for uh, healthy eating, then there's a link for it. If you're talking about hearing accessible venues, there's a link for it. If you're talking about groceries, there's another one for that. If you're talking about Meals on Wheels, there's something for that. The Naranon, Alcoholics Anonymous, housing. So that would be, I think, an excellent place to start because you don't have to go through press one press five you can simply say how do i get in touch to understand about how i can get uh, dental treatment at my home bang it's right there so well, just the fact that we just had this conversation and you mentioned that site is again a pe- another piece of the puzzle for somebody like me to have that out there in the airways okay that's wonderful that that's something that i just took note of and it's a great resource that uh, i certainly will uh, use and i mean you just mentioned something there about addictions counseling for seniors and, and a lot of people don't think about that but uh, i i actually have a person who was going through uh, addiction and Try to imagine, you know, you're dealing with trying to cope with uh, keeping them afloat financially, putting them in a home, and then also trying to deal with an addiction and and not being totally sure on how to do that. And, of course, some elderly people can present quite well in public that you would never know that they do have struggles with that. So that's I'm glad to hear that the seniors NLCA site has addiction counseling. Um, Well, they they can put you on to the appropriate thing as opposed to trying to surf around forevermore. It's a real go-to. So whether it's, again, finding a tax clinic or beware of frauds and scams or the different forms of elder abuse and who's the right person to talk to, it's a click away. Excellent. Just one or two last little comments here, Patty, uh, if, if I could. Sure. Uh, so obviously, I just want to advocate for an increase in trained personnel to help deal with the people who are dealing with aging parents. You know, like so having people that can guide uh, somebody like me who is trying to uh, get this stuff done. Now, I'm at a point where I have things settled away, but I'm calling to hopefully make that road a little bit smoother for somebody else because uh, the caregivers t- typically are in crisis by the time they start to make these calls. So having, you know, just some extra people there, uh, I appeal to the minister to uh, consider that. And uh, I, I understand that all of the issues that are raised here today have spin us. Like if I say something that questions about uh, testing for seniors at a certain age that might uh, take away some people's license, well, then we have to have infrastructure in place to transport them. It doesn't mean they're stuck at home. You know, I know there are spin-off considerations here, but it's just around the table when you start to do the think tank, you have to weigh off one. Is it worth it to take the chance? You know, like for the family who uh, sends somebody out there who doesn't know uh, the road rules or who is not reacting right, 
the person who was in an accident because of that, it's they wish there was testing. On the other end, the person who is now displaced to say, well, now I got to go pick my mom up and bring her to the store, or now I got to do this and that. Like having other things in place, I know will spin off from this. I'm just asking it to be maybe brought to a table so that the the think tanks can sit down and say, you know, where where should we be on this? What are the actual statistics on this? to see where we should go. So, um, and finally, just uh, to, to mention, my girlfriend uh, said an interesting line today, and uh, I, I thought I'd, I'd mention it. She said, uh, we have the entrance plan to getting into things like the workplace, you know, getting your license, getting established, you know, like there are testing you do when you're a young person and so on to get yourself in, but we don't really have the exit strategy down so much. So I'm just, making this call to, I guess, uh, again, appeal to the minister, to the government, to give some time to this, to think about it, because we do have an aging population. And I know I have many friends personally going through this who are struggling with the same things I did. And I'm sure there are other families. So I just wanted to raise that point. I appreciate your time and the points you raised this morning, John. Thank you, sir. By, by the way, I met your, your wife, my girlfriend, and I were at a function. What a lovely lady, and uh, you're you. a lucky man in terms of he's a, just a wonderful person. Am I take ever. Care. Thanks, John. All right. All right, take okay, care. Bye-bye. All right, uh, let's take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number one, Jerome, you're on the air. Well, good morning, Patty, and thanks for taking my call, man. No problem, man. I got a real conundrum, Patty, a very serious one as far as my wife and I are concerned because... Uh, uh, well, I'm trying to make it short, but I, I'll probably get mixed up but by doing so. But anyway, Patty, a bit of background. I worked with, uh, as a paper maker in Grand Falls for 30-something years and uh, retired in 2000. Uh, and all the while paying a, a pension plan for uh, these years that I would get to retire in, please God, which I have. So, Patty... 22, this would be my 22nd year drawing my pension, and there wasn't one time that my pension didn't show on the first of the month, no matter what it fell on Christmas Day. It was always for in my wife and I, our account, joint account. So anyway, I, uh, I come to find out uh, on the first of this month that it didn't show up in the bank. I went to the bank and got statements, uh, flashback statements of several months, and it was paid right up until uh, 1st of July didn't show up and the 1st of August now didn't show up. I have no leads. I have no papers because we, I lost, we lost everything in a house fire recently. And I can't find out where my money's to, Patty, and the, 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 the bank is telling me that each thing that this is supposed to cover on the first of the month from our account is not being covered, and I'm, we're being penalized on each account. So you don't know where the pension checks have been coming from? Uh, the only thing I got on my readout, I got a readout uh, of... Uh, yeah, I, I never had, I never bothered this because it always showed for all this time. And uh, but anyway, I can give you the how it's highlighted when it comes to me. If that'd be any help, maybe somebody out there will know what I'm talking about. Are, are there pensioners in the central area? You know, possibly, but the bank will know exactly who sends the pension money along. No, 
I went to the bank uh, on the first, second, and third, spent hours, and uh, they tried everything in their power to find out, and, and nobody seems to know. It's just highlighted in a French name, and uh, it comes first of every month, except the last two months, and quite an amount of money, Patty, I might say. Uh, okay. It, uh, should I read it just for somebody maybe listening as a pensioner? Or? If you'd like to, go ahead. Well, it just it just highlight like EMPL in capitals, which is employee or employer or whatever. Yeah. Employer, I would say, and the next word is French, Betty. It's spelled S Y N N D I Q U E S. I Q E S. That sounds like a company name. I Q U E S. Syndique. Yes, uh, uh, someone said uh, a little bit like Farrah I did get. Said, they said that sounds like union. But I don't know, Patty, and then it's Mark P- Penn, P-E-N slash P-E-N. Yeah, Syndique absolutely could refer to a union, no doubt about it. And there's no, I can't get a number for him. I, I don't know who to turn to. The only, uh, one of the main reasons I'm calling you, Patty, is to, to put it out there, there must be hundreds of pensioners that re- retired uh, uh, probably uh, in in the same plan. You know what I mean, Patty? I did hear of one particular person, but I can't track him down, that had a problem similar to this, but uh, I wouldn't know. Now, I haven't seen this. He was a fellow worker uh, 20 years ago, Patty. But uh, I can't seem to find it where our money is to, and uh, and we have nothing to cover our payments with, and being penalized besides. I understand. Even okay. Our car, even our car is up and you know, in trouble. Okay. So I just had a quick look. Now I can read some of this document, but it's all entirely in French. But it does have yes. mention to the. Uh, which is under their own syndic, which is a reference to their union. Uh, see if I can decipher any of this, which might point me in a helpful direction. Okay, it's COVID stuff. That's not it. Um, it doesn't have a translate on top. Let me see if there's a number. Um, okay, hold on. There's the translate button. Okay, it's a manufacturing industry federation. Abitibi fell in under it, and I assume this and this entity played a role in pension money going out the door. Um, I assume yes. Pardon me. Uh, yes, I assume that. You know, I can't get my. Uh, go ahead, Patty. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, I'm just trying to get you contact information. Oh yes, absolutely. Uh, contact. See where that gets me. So head office is in Montreal, but there's a distinct mention of Abitibi in under their, the work that they're doing. Let me see. Uh, contact you from anywhere in Canada. Try this one. One eight six six. Okay, Patty, just a second. One eight six six. Yes, Patty. Six four six. Six four six. Yes, Patty. Seven seven six zero. Seven seven six zero. If that doesn't get you where you want to be, you get back to me. I'll have another look. But I simply, I, I googled Abby Tibby, Syndique, Union, uh, Central Pension, just all the buzzwords. And the very first thing that popped up was this particular organization, which is the Manufacturing Industry Federation. And it's making, you know, top stories about making sure Glencore, which is another company that they're paying out pension uh, pension workers. That was an operation at Royal Naranda. But Abby Tibby is also part of what they're referring to here. So call them. If that's not going to help you out, get back to me. I'll see what I can Point. 
Petty, I'm just wondering now, uh, I, I had a number from somebody that I don't think this may be the one, but anyway, it, uh, the phone rang and uh, it babbled off some uh, uh, French language that I didn't know. I don't know French. My wife don't know French. And then it just hangs up. Now, I don't know if I'll have the same problem on this number, Petty, but if I do, can I call you back? Yeah, sure. You might have to speak with Dave if I'm still on the air or not in the office, but... Uh, I'm going to imagine as a national organization there will be the ability to get to speak to someone in uh, in English. If you don't, then let me know and I'll see where else I can point you. Thanks, Patty. You're so wonderful. Thanks so much. Appreciate this. Good luck with it, Jerome. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Okay. Uh, hopefully that gets him somewhere where he wants to go because this obviously is an umbrella uh, um, uh, industry federation in manufacturing, so hopefully he has some luck there. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, fix in the queue to talk about the forest fires, then there's a possible lockout coming at the Port of St. John's. We'll find out more from uh, Chris Posse. He's the regional VP for the Canadian Transportation Employees Union. Don't go away. You're busy, but you'll never be uninformed. Get up to date on the way home. The Drive on your VOCM. Welcome back. Let's go to line number four. Say good morning to the regional vice president for the Canadian Transportation Employees Union. That's Chris Bussey. Good morning, Chris. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Grand today. How about yourself? I'm not too bad. So what's happening? I just wanted to to call and talk about uh, what's going on with the round of negotiations at St. John's Port. Currently, we... uh, we are preparing to file an unfair labor practice against the port uh, for their actions during the round of bargaining. And, and on a high level, I guess, we've negotiated a collective agreement or a tentative agreement with the port. And the port is holding that tentative agreement hostage to uh, the condition that the, the, the union dropped two grievances. And uh, under the legislation, the uh, the union... I mean, the, the collective agreement has to have a, a clause in it that has a, a grievance procedure because you don't have the right to lay it on your tools to, to resolve a dispute. Mm-hmm. And uh, and that purpose is, you know, is so you can go to an arbitrator and an arbitrator will decide what the, what the language in the collective agreement means. In in this case, uh, the employer had, had been using employees to do, you know, standby duty, right, for a period of time, um, they put it, they put members on two of our members on standby. They shared three ways between the manager and two members for a week at a time, and that's to be available for after hours for to answer phone calls. That's based on the general number that they have on their website. So it's and they could be dealing with anything from uh, coordinating an emergency response for a vessel that's coming in, giving a berthing assignment, uh, doing a crane permit doing a diving permit, any of those things. And, and to be available to do that work, they get paid standby, up one hour pay for every eight hours of standby. But when they're called into work, called to do the work, then they're supposed to get overtime. So what the employer has been doing is they, they haven't been paying them overtime for answering these calls and coordinating this work. And uh, we filed a grievance based on the refusal of you know, there's hundreds of hours of overtime for one of our members. So we're in bargaining. We have a tentative agreement. We have all issues resolved. But the employer insists that the union uh, remove these grievances. And they've actually gone and sent a memo out to, to the workers saying that you would have a collective agreement. You would have a 13-point-something percent increase. You would have this and you would have this. 
if if your colleague, if one of your coworkers, would remove her grievance and not put in for overtime for for work that she's done after hours. So uh, we're we're right now finished conciliation. We're in a countdown to uh, to a strike or lockout. We're not going on strike for uh, for a grievance procedure that we have the right under legislation to to have. So it looks like the employer, in a, in a bid to get rid of the members' rights and the grievance procedure, are uh, are going to lock the members out within well six. It would have been twenty one days from the sixth of August. Aren't there legal protections inside labour laws for grievance procedures, with whether it be uh, the amount of time that the employer and or the union has the grievances heard? Uh, there, there is, and this is this is already sent to uh, to PSAC, is, is our, our bigger union, and, and sent to PSAC. It's being assigned to an arbitration board, but the employer is trying to circumvent that that process, and uh, and that's in, in our in our minds that's an unfair labour practice, and we have we have a law firm that is drafting up that uh, that complaint to the uh, Canadian Industrial Relations Board. But in the interim, we, we have members that are at work uh, feeling pressured to, to bully their, their buddy into dropping a, a, a grievance and, and concerned that they will be locked out by their, by their employer. And what we want, what we want the court to do is let the grievance procedure run its course as it's supposed to, as enshrined in the Canada Labour Code, and sign the tentative agreement that we have negotiated, let us ratify it, and uh, and let the employees uh, enjoy their, their collective agreement and, and treat them with respect in the workplace. Pretty basic requests. Um, I'm a little bit surprised that there's even the opportunity to ask other voting members to ask or encourage their fellow employees to drop a grievance so they can ratify a new collective, uh, new collective bargaining agreement. That's... It doesn't really sound like it should be necessarily even available, that tactic. So I'm a little surprised that that's something that can actually happen here. I mean, there's one company, I'll leave the company name out of it, but they operate in Labrador. And there was at one point the headbutting between the employees and the union and the operator was extensive. There were some 300-plus grievances on the table at one moment in time. They went on and had to negotiate a collective bargaining agreement during all that, and the grievances didn't go away. So this is the first we've ever heard of anything like it, to be honest. Yeah, and, and with, the, with the Public Service Alliance of Canada, Patty, we, we negotiate hundreds of collective agreements, and uh, we know the legislation. We know that grievances are not meant to be dealt with at the bargaining table. You, you bargain the collective agreement, and the grievances are, are meant to settle disputes within what you've negotiated, right? And, uh, you know, our, our concern is either the employer is getting bad legal advice or, or, or you know, they're, they're, they're that destined to... Uh, to pressure the employees that uh, you know it, it is part of the, the unfair labor practices to communication directly to our members as well but uh, my hope here is that they'll you know hear this on the radio today they'll have a have a second look at what they're doing and they'll do the right thing and uh, you know sign up that tentative agreement let the grievances continue on their course and be resolved in, in the process that they're supposed to be and uh, yeah Chris keeps in the loop I will for sure, Patty. Thank you for uh, for letting us uh, get our message out. I appreciate the time. Good luck. Thank you. You're yep. welcome. Bye-bye. It's Chris Bussey, Regional VP for the Canadian Transportation Employees Union. Before we go to a uh, break, it's probably the right place to go. Three, Jim, you're on the air. 
Yes, Patty. Thank you for taking my call. No problem. I lost a man's skull bracelet on Monday. Can I name the three stops that I was into? Fire away. I was into Paradise Bakery. Then I went to Water uh, Brewery Lane there in Mount Pearl. Mm-hmm. And then I went to Walmart. So one of those places I must have lost. By the time I got home, I was, there were the only three stops I got out at. And, you know, this was a gift given to me over 25 years ago. And I was wondering if I could put my number on the radio. Please do. Go ahead, John. Or two, uh, my number is 682-2535. Yep. And there's a reward offered, and the best I can do, you know. Yeah, no problem. So it's well, a gold really bracelet. appreciate it. No problem, sir. So gold bracelet lost. You heard it was Walmart, Brewery Lane, and Paradise Break Bakery. Yes, sir. 682-2535. If you picked it up, it was a gift that Jim received over 25 years ago. He'd love to have it back, and a reward is offered. Yes, sir. Thank you very much. Good luck with it, Jim. Okay, thanks again. You're welcome. All right, bye. Okay, bye-bye. So hopefully he's reunited with his bling. All right, let's check the Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openline at VOCM.com. When we come back after a final break of the morning, Vic wants to talk about the forest fires. There are some four of them that are raging. Two in particular in Central are still deemed out of control. And then Randy's there wants to talk about CRA. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's go to line number two. Vic, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty, and your listening audience. Good morning to you. Thank you for taking my call. No problem. I'm very concerned about our forest fires in central Newfoundland. Uh, reason being, I understand uh, it's uh, most of those forests, I think it's, uh, uh, I think we're, people will rely on those for, uh, I guess, uh, logging in Centra. Uh, so I'm just wondering now, I, I'm just wondering what plans or what help can they get from other problems. I understand that Quebec, I think, has sent a water bomber down, I believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, I'm also aware that it takes a long time. I think it, it takes 80 years for those four to, uh, to uh, I guess, uh, recover uh, from, from forest fires. The other, uh, also, I think 30 years it takes to recover from logging. So uh, uh, I mean, it's frightening, actually. I think I understand from my news this morning there that uh, those fires are still uh, um, uh, with, with out of control, actually. So I'm just wondering what program or what uh, plans they have from, you know, uh, what what assistance can they get from, from other provinces? You know, this is certainly very, very scary. In, in, in the world of fire and rejuvenation, I think you used 80 as the number for a boreal forest. It's more likely in the neighborhood of, of 30 years for full recovery and you know when we're talking about and this is a natural phenomenon whether it be controlled burns and or force fires so 30 years for that type of a force to recover uh, what the plan is for it of course when we're talking about logging there's a reforestation plan in place as part of their permit to cut down the logs cut down the trees so beyond that I'm not so sure what programs would be in place or what other programs could be utilized to be honest I see. I just want, yes, it's very serious, very serious because we have a minimal resource here that's obviously uh, uh, going up in smoke. It's very, very, very concerning, actually. That's why I was wondering, you know, because it's, it's I know we have some rain, but it's, not, it's insufficient to uh, actually. We need, a lot, we need about a week's rain, actually. The other point, uh, I, I heard a gentleman, I think, last week talking. I think his name is Tom. I think he might have had a small business. I think he was talking about small business, but uh, I think the, uh, I wasn't quite sure. I never got to all what he was talking about. But 
it seems to me small business here in Newfoundland I really think need some sort of help and I think he was also mentioning something about employees uh, I don't know if he has trouble getting employees or not I was just wondering uh, uh, maybe somebody could come on your, uh, your program to actually discuss what is available for a small business because small business here in Newfoundland I guess uh, as most places certainly is probably the backbone of our economy you know and it seems like this gentleman had uh, I think he was talking about uh, maybe he needed some uh, some uh, assistance. I think the other thing he, I think he probably mentioned was that there was many uh, probably other jobs being taken. Uh, most of the jobs here in Newfoundland are probably uh, up to, uh, probably filled by uh, government jobs, etc., which is really uh, not helping the economy. Well, so, uh, uh, certainly uh, real real dollars. We we need more real dollars. So, of course, uh, well, certainly our forest, uh, which is burning around there now, is real dollars. And uh, so, but how do we get real dollars back here in Newfoundland? I guess that's what he is. So I think he loses that also. I'm not so sure that is exactly how I heard the conversation, but uh, yeah. Anyway, I'll have to maybe even give it a re-listen if I can try to. Yeah, I don't know what is square the circle here. Say, but certainly we need. Uh, well, we don't. We we still haven't seen. A, at least I haven't. I don't think. We still haven't seen a blueprint as to where our money is going and what the government is doing with our money, where it's coming from, where it's going, and you know, just are we spending? Are we doing things properly? In the provincial government? Well, there. Right. I mean, there certainly is a way to see those types of numbers uh, during the budget. The people focus in on the, the glassy handouts and the summaries and the talking points and the real devil and the details of the devil is in a book um, document called The Estimates. And okay. you absolutely, inside the Auditor General, there's a clear breakdown of where government revenue comes from, okay. whether it be from taxes or royalties or fees or permits okay. or stuff. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so, I mean, those numbers are certainly available. Okay. Thank you very much. I shall look it up. Okay, Vic, appreciate the Thank time. Thank you. Have a nice day. You Bye too. Bye-bye. Uh, let's go to line number one. Randy, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning to you. Patty. Yeah. Randy Moulton here calling again from the beautiful Lillens Cove down here on the beautiful Bjorn Peninsula. Patty. Right. Yeah. I'm still getting the federal run around from the Canada Revenue Agency to CRA. Uh-huh. Patty, I think it's time to bring in the IRS to straighten out the CRA, LOL. The IRS is a complete mess. <laughs> And the CRA is, is a bigger mess. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if we think we have tax problems and tax code problems, man, one of my pals has been living in the United States for some 25 years. <laughs> to hear him describe the tax code and trying to decipher it and to apply his own uh, income is just maddening. CRA's got tons of problems. Don't get me wrong. And that's no, Patty Daly, S-M-I-T-H. But the IRS apparently is a massive disaster. Well, what do you, what's the runaround about? What are you dealing with? Just get the CRA to straighten that to straighten themselves out. Okay, what's the issue? Well, yesterday I called one eight hundred nine five nine eight two eight one for about at least a hundred times since February, and yesterday upon my first phone call they passed me on to three different people, and the last person was lo and behold with identity verification again. Yeah, okay. And they put me on hold and had to listen to that mournful music. And heard Buddy Washington's name say, sorry, but all our agents are busy. Right. And after waiting for dogs agents before many, many, many phone calls since February, graciously hung up the phone. LOL. So here's my CRA poem again, and in closing, I'll read out my pothole poem. And it won't take very long. 
The CRA, well, they don't want to pay. Back in February, they put me on delay. I wrote this poem in May, and for now, that's all I have to say about the CRA, other than they don't want to pay. Hey, hey, hey. Here's a couple of pieces of advice. The yeah. They say the phone line's open at whatever, 9 o'clock, but if you're in this province, you can get in there a half hour earlier and maybe avoid some of the long wait. So well, I've been there and done that. Don't you regret hanging up on me and everything? Yeah, okay, well, it's, it's, it's worked for me, and I think it's worked for others as well. Uh, okay. In addition to CRA uh, not wanting to pay and whatnot, there was a news story this week where some 9 million Canadians are owed in the neighborhood of $1.4 billion, whether it be checks not cashed, checks lost, people change addresses after they file their taxes. But you can go to your MyGov account or whatever it's called, your account with CRA, to see if you may indeed be uh, owed some money, which I think is interesting. I know that's maybe not your circumstance, but I'll throw it out there. Well, I tell you about my Canada account, Teddy. They've had me locked out of my Canada account since February. Why? Because the password I put in, they didn't like it. <laughs> okay. Oh, only thing I can say, but I can't read that password out over the open line. Huh? No, not if they wouldn't accept it. We probably can't. No. So anyway, here's my pothole poem. Potholes, 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 potholes everywhere. As you drive upon them, you have to decide very quickly which way you have to steer. Potholes, 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 potholes everywhere. As you constantly drive around them, you can see them in your rear, your rearview mirror. Right. Hey? Potholes, 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 potholes everywhere. If you're unfortunate, if unfortunately, if you unfortunately drive into a big one, it's going to cost you dear. Damaged tires, rims, bow joints, tie rod ends, control arms, just to name a few. If you drive into a deep one, you're going to be in a stew. Potholes, 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 potholes everywhere. You're better off staying home. And order an egg for beer. Call up the boys or the girls, break out the dirt or the carriage, or turn on the game. And a big cheer. Potholes, 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 potholes everywhere. Potholes, 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 potholes everywhere. Now, here lately, well, you know something? Here lately, now, they filled in a few of the potholes here on the Bureau Peninsula, hey? Okay. Yep. Well, that's a good thing. Yes, it is a good thing. Because, you know something? I damaged, I, I ruined three tires, two tires, uh, three tires on the old 2010 Mazda. And 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 two tie rod ends on the on the old BMW here, yeah. Well, now I'm I'm also okay. going to I'm, I'm going to I'm going to send them in an invoice now to government, huh? Uh, good luck with that. Uh, yeah. Let me know. <laughs> let me know how it goes. Appreciate the time, Randy. Take care. Yeah, you too. Have a good one. You too. All the best. Yeah. Bye bye. Bye bye. You want me to sneak one on here, Dave? All right. Uh, line number two, Margo. You're on the air. Oh, hi, Patty. It's Margaret Cranford calling. Oh, hi, Margaret. And I just, I know I only have a very short time, but with the forest fires that are burning and have been burning for some time, you know, I haven't heard much about uh, the animals that have been affected, the wildlife, you know, the home of the of the winged ones and the four-leggeds and, you know, that's a great concern as an Indigenous person and as a human. We had brief discussions about it when we talked about people and needing to get their bee colonies out of there. We have indeed sent notes along to wildlife about what they're seeing, what they're doing, what people need to know about wildlife in the area. You know, the impact it will have on migratory routes, animals that may have perished in the fire. We haven't heard back yet, but that's something that we've also asked. Yeah, that's it's, it's such an important uh, issue, you know, and I know it's a dire situation out there. And honestly, like... If everybody could just put the most positive energy out there for the rain to come. And and I know that people are. I know that we're all concerned. 
and that the people stay safe there, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's number one. And we can always factor in different moving parts like humans and buildings and uh, homes and cabins and, yes, wildlife. And that's a question we've asked and we're hoping to get some information. Yeah, it's it's shelter. It's shelter for humans and the animals, you know, and it, it's a food source. It And it would be interesting to know the numbers. If we get them, we'll be sure to talk about them, about them on the air. I wish we had more time this morning, Margaret. Thank you so much for getting me on. Take good and care. Have a great day, Patty. You too. Bye-bye now. Okay, bye-bye. All right, we are out of time, but we will pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.